Hello, Denise. How are you? I'm very well. It's lovely to see you. I've been loving your podcast. Have you been listening to the whole thing? Of course I have. It's like a thriller, except that I know how it finishes. I joined in 2015, so there's a bit of pre- Pre my time that um, you know didn't didn't appreciate so it's it's great. So Denise, tell us about you. What are you busy doing at this moment in time? Give us a bit of your background. Yes, thank you. Well, I'm currently the uh, head of HR or chief people officer. We call it uh, at a medium-sized ed tech education technology company called Janison. Uh, it's a listed company and it's been around for a while, but uh, it's kind of changed strategic direction over the last few years. So it's very much a a scale up, which is, you know, where I love to be, actually. Uh, a, a very similar size to Vocus, actually, when I joined I join Vocus. Um, so, yes, I've been in HR, you know, for quite a while now, though I started in finance-centred uh, functions uh, at the beginning of my career. Uh, and I was put in charge of people uh, when I was pretty young. And so I developed an interest in, you know, people kind of leadership and what motivated people and uh uh and that sort of thing and that led me to to move into hr as a specialist and i've been doing it a very long time now let me ask you a question what motivates people treating them like grown-ups john uh you know i've been part of as i was kind of learning the ropes earlier in my career part of creating organizations that really limited people you know through process and uh, you know, developing policies to catch the one person who might do something wrong. Uh, and so I'm very much about uh, trying to get out of people's way because I've just got a fundamental belief that people are fantastic. And if you point them in the right direction, they'll do amazing things. Uh, so let them. And has that been your experience? People do amazing things? Absolutely. And Vocus is the, you know, premier example of that not not just because that's what we're talking about but that's you know focus uh, the focus experience was significant in my career because we really were able to create that kind of environment for people and I, and I have to say I think that's a big reason that focus became so successful so quickly so let's go through that you joined focus in April 2015 at that time focus was run by James and was on the verge of acquiring MCOM, and you were leading the HR and the internal communication function. So, so take us through the process. You've just joined Vocus, and your first sort of job is MCOM, which is going to double the size of Vocus in overnight almost. And now tell us about what you did and how that experience went for you. And, and yes. before you go there, how long were you at Vocus before it acquired MCOM? Oh, two months. So what was your experience like in those first two months, firstly? Yes. Uh, so, um, and when I joined, Vocus was about two, and I always think in terms of employee numbers, um, about 220 employees from memory across Australia and New Zealand. And uh, we were working on the uh, proposed acquisition of AMCOM, which is one of your podcast refers, wasn't as straightforward as we would have hoped. So it was kind of touch and go as to whether the deal was going to go through there for a little while. But obviously, we had to plan for the fact that it was. And so it did, I'm pleased to say. Uh, and everybody was hugely excited about that. But that meant the company actually quadrupled in size uh, overnight. So we went from the 200 or so employees to um I think it was about 800, 600, maybe it was triple, 600 employees. And um, and it was just a, 
a great experience. It was very, um, we had to fly by the seat of our pants, um, but, you know, to, to James and Rick Carell's credit, I said, you know, let's not do this perfectly. Let's get over there to Perth because that's where Amcom was headquartered and really put our arms around the people, you know, and try and give them some comfort about the future because it can be quite unsettling uh, when you're acquired by another business. Um, and, you know, uh, they almost felt liberated, uh, I want to say, in terms of uh, what we brought, the kind of culture that we brought to what was quite a conservative organisation as AMCOM. So, yeah, there were some who didn't come along with the acquisition, some in more senior leadership roles, and we thought that was important uh, to affect the kind of cultural change that uh, we wanted to affect. But but uh, by and far, the, um, most of the people from AMCOM came across with the acquisition and we gave them some comfort. You know, we put up, put up an organisational chart, which was pages and pages long, where people could see their names in, you know, in a box. It sounds very kind of rudimentary, but it was uh, hugely comforting to people at that point. Uh, and we had a party, uh, which is always key on day one. So, so <laughs> let me just understand something you actually said. You said some of the senior leadership people were changed in order that we would all have the same focus culture. Well, it would never be the same. And when you put organisations together, it never is. I think sure. I've, I've resiled against the notion that, you know, um, there's one culture in an organisation. There's actually many. Uh, and you don't add, you know, 600 people to your employee kind of population without something changing. And I think that was a lesson that we learned, uh, to be honest, uh, from the Amcom acquisition. You know, as the acquirer, you can often have a... Uh, overrated sense of your own kind of you know culture or systems and and impose them almost on the acquired company and I think to some degree we did that uh, not in the people space so much but perhaps more in the technological areas and I think we learned a lot from that and so when we went on to manage with M2 and then we brought NextGen and we brought another couple of uh, little companies during that time as well uh, we were very cognizant to choose the best from you know both worlds rather than just the Vocus way of doing things. So how long did we, the Vocus own MCOM before M2? Look, you know before what? You, before you started it, working on M2. It wasn't long at all, um, <laughs> which kind of blew my mind a little bit, you know, it, it was a big enough uh, change uh, to try to integrate the business from a people perspective. And then, you know, we, obviously things were kind of held tightly by the people involved in the deal, but it became, became obvious to me at least that something was happening uh, and you know once it once the covers were lifted uh, it was a significant um, merger or acquisition however you want to want to term it um, I think M2 may have been about a thousand people at the time so they were you know double again um, and yeah there, it was only a matter of months from memory so how was was, was the was the acquisition of M2? different to the acquisition of MCOM in terms of how you found the people, your role, uh, what was going on overall? Yes, it was. It was, uh, you know, I think the term merger of equals, you know, uh, perhaps gets overplayed, but it, the approach to how to set the organisation up uh, seemed to, you know, come from that that place. And so the decision was was made that, uh, and as you referred to, you know, we'd split the board down the middle 
Um, we've split the executive team down the middle and, uh, you know, only, I think I was only there eight months actually at this point, I actually had to recontest my role because there was an HR director from the M2 side of the business. So that, um, that's never fun, especially, you know, having only been there eight months to kind of put your you know, neck on the line again. Um, fortunately it, it went my way, but it was, you know, unsettling personally because uh, I just loved the place and I, you know, really wanted to be part of its future. Um, and, you know, and as, as you've said, we, we lost some people, uh, Mark Simpson, whom I love, you know, uh, uh, he left the organization. That was, that was pretty sad as well. A few people from the M2 side, um, left as well. Uh, and there we were, you know, a newly constructed team. It was quite, a, quite a bizarre kind of feeling, to be honest, to look across the table to, you know, a new set of faces overnight. When you got that video from Mark Simpson, I assume you got the same video as me. Did you think when he said, not you, it referred to you, not you. It referred to you. <laughs> but it was different once we merged with M2. So tell me, when you now you, now you own M2, what, what were like your biggest challenges that you hadn't faced before, which suddenly you, you're facing with leadership or whatever else that was going on? What were the big challenges there? Versus, and, and really versus James's, from, from from running a business with James now, James not being involved. What are the new challenges? Yeah, it was it was different. Uh, and you know, it was okay at the start, you know, we in terms of the work that me and my team did, we just, you know, got our integration plan out and started all over again in terms of the tactical stuff. But the real challenge was around culture. And it became pretty obvious to me early on that um, even though you know, there are a lot of synergies and a lot of opportunity by putting the businesses together. There really was a different culture. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, Vocus, you know, was very much kind of uh, unconventional. And, you know, James used to say, does it make the boat go faster? I think he stole that from somebody. And that, that there was that really kind of, you know, fast-paced, agile attitude to just getting stuff done that, that makes the business more successful. M, M2 was definitely more conservative. Uh, and you know, at the at the upper echelons, uh, I think that really played out over time as something that became untenable. Really, below the executive, um, people just got on with it. You know, I'm still in contact with people that came from different businesses into Vocus. Um, uh, I, I think we had huge success in terms of integrating uh, at that level. You know, the, the and we were two and a half thousand employees by this stage plus. 3,000 in an outsourced arrangement who, who loved the, the, the culture. Um, but the pro problems really started to show at that executive level and, and clearly at the board level. So, so give us um, examples of some of, the, some of the issues that you sort of started facing at the executive level. Uh, look, um, you know, it's a style thing to a large degree. We, we, we'd done some work to integrate our values uh, into had some values that they hadn't really articulated, but they had some things that they lived by. And so early, early on when we came together, we went through a, a process of trying to trying to value, you know, both both sides, if you like, for want of a better term, of the business. And so we came up with um, some reiterated values, but we had kept a couple of that focus held dearly. And and my favourite was, uh, we're a clever com company with no muppets, and that really informed the way you know, I operated and my team operated in terms of initiatives we developed that treated people like awesome 
you know, talented people because we don't have Muppets, right? And, um, but that's unusual. And that was very much, uh, that came through from the M2 side of the business that, um, that, you know, it was almost kind of reductive in terms of uh, their approach to people that, that you know, limited them, I think, you know. Um, and so as time went on, we seemed to move further and further away, in my opinion, from the values that, you know, in James's time, absolutely informed everything we did and the way that we did it. And that became quite disappointing uh, to me personally. I mean, we came up with a, a you know, shared set of values and, and on paper, the, they, they were, you know, they were great. They were really kind of uh, edgy, you know, uh, and we love that about focus. But um, uh, for example, another one was have a crack, you know, uh, in an agile scale up, uh, hyper growth uh, scale up. You know, you've just kind of kind of give people the headroom to have a crack. But once kind of we merged with them too, there, there was a lot more bureaucracy and a lot more process that crept into place that that and a lot more kind of decisions that needed to go to the top. Things slowed down, um, it became more hierarchical. And I guess that's the biggest um the biggest, the most stark observation I made between James's style and Jeff's style was James just had a way of expanding the conversation. I remember sitting in an executive meeting, and this is when we still, we hadn't um, merged the executive team. So we still had two full executive teams. We still had two full boards too. And we were down in Melbourne and, um, you know, just kind of starting conversation. And uh, one of the M2 executives was talking about why something couldn't happen. You know, we can't afford it, um, something like that. Something to do with Dodo. I can't remember exactly what it was. And James almost brought the room to a standstill by saying, what if we didn't have to worry about that? What if we could afford it? Would that change what you think needs to happen? And it was such a stark example of what he did. He didn't have to be the smartest guy in the room, James. He loved surrounding himself by talented, smart people. Um, and 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 he would back you. You know, we didn't always agree, especially when I first started. He, he, you know, I had some kind of unconventional ideas and I wanted to strip away some process um, that, that, you know, had been implemented with the best of intentions. But, you know, um, given my experience, just didn't fit with this hyper growth scale up culture. So, Denise, being involved in all the people space, just you're talking about from a people point of view. Um, so did you think that the, that the merger, and I'm not talking about from your from the HR point of view in terms of systems, I'm talking about from a culture, from an overall environment. Um, was the merger going well or were there, did you feel that there are issues arising out of the focus people versus the M2 people? There were a whole lot of issues because you were involved, not only were you involved in payroll, but you were sort of, if I can say, people came to you with issues. <laughs> um, you know, you were the. If that's if that, if that would be a fair description of some of your job. If people coming and saying, "I'm unhappy about this or that," was that part of your job for people to come and tell you their problems and issues? Well, it was part of my job to certainly provide channels for people to give feedback, and yeah. so that didn't necessarily mean coming to to me personally. But you know, some people did. I mean, I had a decent sized team by this point. We had about thirty people in my team, um, but definitely, I always view. Have always viewed my part of my role as being the, the the thermometer, you know, the weather vane almost. So I made it my business. What was the weather vane? So tell us, give us kind of what the weather vane was like. Things definitely started to go wrong over time, um, but 
um, by and large, I think most people kind of accepted that some stuff would take time to change. Um, but but as time went on, things got worse at the, lead, the senior leadership level. It was it became very factional. Um, you know, the, the things that we'd held dearly on the focus side around creativity and innovation and fast moving became increasingly frustrating because of, you know, um, the style, the style of leadership um, that was a lot different to James's. So yes, definitely. And, and because we're leading the, you know, the, the whole organization, fractures at the top create fractures, you know, further down in terms of that silo behavior that you were talking about. Well, at that point, there were four of us um, on the executive team. So there was Matt Hollis, who was the head of the kind of sales engine, if you like. Chris Deere, who you've referred to a few times. Um, uh, Rick, of course, in charge of finance and me um, looking after the, the HR and communications. So, uh, and I remember a few of the names of the M2 people, but not not all of them. Um, and so as time went on, it became it became increasingly frustrating for us to do what we, you know, felt our job was, which was to move fast and, um, you know, create create a hugely successful business. Um, so you know, one by one, we left. Um, Matt Matt left first, uh, and went on to do other things and. Uh, then I think it was Chris or maybe Rick. No, it was definitely Chris. Uh, Chris D left, and then it was Rick and I. Uh, and Rick left, and I was the last woman to go. Let's go. Let's go with this. So, so then along comes um, Next Gen. Yes. Now, tell us a bit about Next Gen. How did that integration go? Well, again, you know, um, it was a little bit trickier. Some people at, at NextGen had been there for a very long time. Um, their clients were, um, you know, typically government agencies and that kind of engenders a bit of kind of conservatism and risk aversion, you know, perhaps necessarily. Um, and, and, you know, uh, you, could, you could see that, I suppose, in the, in the suspicion that, you know, um, people had about this company that had just acquired them. But, but you know, once we'd done really simple things, um, although big things like locate people together in the one office, because it was all office-based pretty much uh, work at that point, you know, you really started to see people come together and um, as, you know, structures changed and people became part of a team with people from a range of uh, organisations historically, then you really saw people start to pull together. Um, so I, I think it was a, I think it was a pretty successful integration from my, my perspective. I'm still in touch with a few people from there as well. Excellent. Um, yeah, but it was a different, you know, it's a different culture yet again, very conservative. Um, but you know, that's okay. You, you always get subcultures as long as you've got the, the foundations of the, the threads that tie us all together, as I like to call them, um, then, then that's okay. But now, now you're coming along and all the Vocus people, the Vocus senior people going down the ranks, the really hand-picked James people who were absolutely integral to building this business or leaving one by one. Um, did you sort of feel that there's becoming a culture of, of Vocus people leaving or getting rid of Vocus people? Yes. Oh. Uh, unquestionably, that was my observation. Um, I, I think Matt kind of 
made his departure um, when he saw the writing on the wall, perhaps. But uh, yeah, certainly I didn't want to leave Opus, and I was surprised uh, that I, you know, was made redundant effectively. Uh, uh, so yes, it seemed a fairly systematic pick off of the Vocus people. I think Jeff just got to the point where he he didn't know who to trust. I think it goes back to his style, you know, that the um, uh, the smartest guy in the room um, style. Trust me, I've replayed it, you know, that kind of last conversation several times in my head because I was heartbroken. I absolutely love Vocus, but it had started to turn into a place uh, where we just lost, lost our secret source. Um, uh, and that's, you know, that's, it really became a uh, M2-led organisation. And so people ask me, you know, in retrospect, like what went wrong, um, you know, merging of cultures doesn't work. Um, I, I think a lot did work uh, and perhaps, you know, perhaps, and maybe it made perfect sense for Jeff to be the CEO in, in the initial days, but um, I think once it became obvious that um, Jeff and James just didn't, you know, didn't kind of align, uh, I think a change in CEO probably external um, probably would have, you know, um, perhaps led to a more successful kind of organisation than it turned out. Hindsight isn't exact science. You see things now that you wish you would have known at the time. But, you know, on paper, it seemed an entirely sensible thing to do. Um, I agree with you. All of it. It just came to styles and the misalignment of where, you know, um, where, where James in particular wanted the business to go and Tony Grist, you know, and, and yourself wanted the business to go and the kind of business that you'd already created and um, that kind of changing, you know, to a degree that became clearly untenable for Tony and and James, I mean, I, I, I would have loved if James had been the CEO of the merged organisation. I think we were, would have gone absolute gangbusters. But I remember him saying, and this is kind of fellow years, right? I remember him standing up in front of the all staff kind of gathering saying, I don't think I could be the, the CEO of this size organisation. It's too big for me. I think I'll be better on the board, you know? I mean, what a kind of a um, yeah. Yeah. self-reflective thing for him to say it's water under the bridge it's a while ago now john I uh, uh, to you. thank you so much for the for everything and thank you for agreeing to come onto this podcast